Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. Please turn with me in your Bible to Colossians chapter 2. So we continue on in verse 16 and following. In the Garden of Eden, our first parents had one rule. When they failed to keep it, they ushered in curse and misery on all of their descendants. Ever since, mankind has sought to set up legal standards by which they might please God, govern society, control themselves, and even control their fallen human desires. God gave his people his law and sent his own son into the world to fulfill the law, ushering in the Christian era after his death and resurrection. And yet believers are still tempted to adopt the world's ways, inventing moral standards to somehow make life work on our own terms. Paul addresses this tendency towards legalism and offers the antidote as we read in Colossians 2, 16 to 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have, and indeed, an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is God's Word. Father, this evening we would ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Dr. Jekyll creates a potion that separates his good and virtuous side from the darker impulses of his nature. As Mr. Hyde, he is unbound by a moral conscience, free to commit crimes villainy, even murder. In contrast, as Dr. Jekyll, he is all good, full of moral virtue. But in time, Dr. Jekyll turns slowly into Mr. Hyde involuntarily, without the aid of a potion, increasingly losing his control to remain his good and virtuous side. Eventually, he runs out of potion, not able to find the key ingredient. 
and his ability to change back into Dr. Jekyll vanishes. He knows that he will become Mr. Hyde permanently. He will be promptly punished for the crimes Mr. Hyde has committed, so Dr. Jekyll takes his own life. Robert Louis Stevenson's classic novel explores the dilemma of the evil and good in the human heart and the trials of bringing our dark side under control. Moralism is the effort of man to curb our sin nature. All the religions of the world are essentially moralistic, offering man guidelines on how to live virtually for the good of others and the good of society. Biblical Christianity is not moralism and is not even technically a religion. Biblical Christianity is life and heart transformation by the grace of God revealed to us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We as believers live by faith as we turn to God for our salvation and our growth in holiness. However, Christianity can become legalistic when our focus comes off of Christ as we turn to rules as the basis for community acceptance, leadership stature, commending what is good and acceptable. Legalism dampens the glorious beauty of the gospel, can cause grave damage to those who seek after it, even unto making shipwreck of their faith. Paul writes to the church, a church tempted to trade away the gospel's freedom and power in favor of regulating their tame passions by the man-made religion, and in the end, exchanging it for another gospel. Tonight, I want us to consider the danger of legalism, the death of legalism, and the deliverance from legalism. Paul opens by exhorting the church at Colossae, saying, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or in regard to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. His referral to Jewish dietary restrictions and festival requirements may at first appear to be, he's describing these false teachers as returning the people of God to Orthodox Jewish practices. Of course, no longer are these required of New Testament believers, but it becomes increasingly clear that these false teachers are advocating an observance of these practices in order to placate something other than God. Supernatural powers or angels thought to direct the courses of the stars and determine human destiny. It was this form of bondage for which Christ came to deliver his people. Now we believe that Paul is not referring to the weekly Sabbath, which is a creation ordinance by which God gave us rest and worship in which since the resurrection we still observe on the first day of the week or the Lord's day. But Paul continues saying that these things 
or a shadow of things that are to come. Yet, but the substance belongs to Christ. A shadow is the result of blocking a light source. It is not a thing in itself. You do not hug the shadow of your spouse or your children or grandchildren. You want to hug the person. Hebrews chapter 10 says that the law was a shadow of the good things to come. That the sacrifices offered year after year never made anyone perfect. And yet God gave the law and the sacrifices in anticipation of the real thing, which is Christ. And so just as it was wrong for the Old Testament believer to trust in his law-keeping, to trust in his sacrifices, rather than looking in faith to the coming promised Redeemer, so it is wrong for those of us on this side of the cross to turn back to forms characterized by the era prior to Christ. Christians are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. We are no longer obligated by the dietary laws and festival requirements or special days. All All of these things foreshadowed and were fulfilled in Christ. But to make it even clearer that these false teachers were not simply zealous, pious Jews returning the church to Orthodox Judaism. Paul says, let no one disqualify you. Disqualification is a serious matter. To be disqualified from the race means you cannot finish. And so these false teachers try to disqualify genuine believers in the Lord by diverting them away from the worship of God and gospel belief. Now there are those that think that when Paul says worship of angels, he's referring to Jewish mystics who desire to participate with the angels and worshiping God around the throne in a kind of ecstatic prayer or asceticism and strict law-keeping. But it's evident that Paul is very much concerned that the church be, is tempted to worship the created things rather than the creator worshiping the intermediaries between God and man rather than God himself. His reference to details concerning about visions is most likely referring to higher stages within the mystery cult initiation rites common in the first century, whereby a practitioner would enter into the innermost sanctuary of the pagan temple. This term suggest those spiritual experiences common to pagan ritual initiation. And so the use of this term exposes the syncretistic nature of this false teaching. Such visions would lure people who desire mystical insight to be puffed up in their pride without reason, to be sensuous, as Paul writes here for one to wrongly think that he is superior to others with special secret knowledge. And so Paul passes judgment upon the false teachers and those who would follow them for not holding fast to the head, which is Christ, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth 
that comes from God. And so in conclusion, these false teachers have rejected Christ in favor of evil spirits. And so we are reminded here that Christ is not only our leader, but our source, the source of our provision, of whose body we are members and through whom we grow and mature. Jesus says in John 15, I am the vine, and you are the branches. The branches must remain with the vine to be nourished, to be strengthened. And apart from him, you and I can do nothing. Without faith in Christ, it is impossible to please God or grow in holiness. The danger of legalism is that it diverts our focus and our dependence away from God and all that he has provided for us in Christ, choosing to go after man-made religion, trusting in ourselves for salvation. Legalism distorts our understanding of God, of ourselves, and the manner in which God has enabled us to be reconciled to him by faith in Christ. Years ago, Jerry Bridges wrote in his book, Transforming Grace, that the Christian life was like driving down a straight road called gospel. And as long as we keep our eyes focused on the gospel, we're fine. But on either side of that road are two ditches. One ditch is called license, and the other ditch is called legalism. And if we swerve, taking our focus off the gospel, we run the risk of causing a wreck in either ditch. To the Corinthian church, Paul preached the law, seeking to rein in the licentiousness characterized by the Corinthian church who was prone to be influenced by their indulgent culture. To the Galatians and the Colossians, Paul was compelled to preach a gospel of freedom and grace, rebuking their legalistic tendencies, tempted to embrace that which would fail to uphold the gospel of God's grace. So how do we die to legalism? Well, Paul answers that question with a rhetorical question of his own in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Here once again is Paul's often repeated reference to what John Calvin described, union with Christ. As in several other places, in Romans 6 in particular, Paul here speaks of our union with Christ, united with Christ in his death, which means we have died to sin and been freed from the worldly rules that enslave the human conscience. Paul will go on to argue in chapter 3 that our union with Christ in his resurrection and ascension makes us responsible to have, to have our minds defined by heaven where Christ is, who is our life, where he lives and reigns. And it says here that with Christ we died to stoicheia, the basic principles of the world. These are the fundamentals of pagan philosophy and religion. The term there was used in Persian religious texts and 
astrological documents common in that era. So when Paul speaks of rulers and authorities in verses 10 and 15, he's referring to the demonic. Though the false teaching comes from human tradition, it always is traced back in its roots to the demonic world. The fundamental philosophy of the world is at odds with Jesus' gospel message. And so if you and I are no longer alive in the ways of the world, no longer enslaved by our fear of evil spirits, if we are no longer in bondage to the flesh, no longer ruled by a man-made religion, why would we submit to its regulations? The antidote to legalism is to hold fast to the head, to abide in Christ. It's from him that we are nourished as the branch is with the vine, strengthened and preserved. Our growth does not come from mastering the ways of worldly wisdom, but being mastered by Christ. And so we reject the spirit of the age and choose to walk in the ways of the Spirit of God. And by his power, putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh, refusing the bondage of legalistic demands of worldly religion. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian meets Mr. Legality on his journey to the celestial city. And Mr. Legality tells Christian that to get rid of the burden on his back, he simply needs to follow the commandments on Legality Hill. And as Christian journeys, he grows in despair as he realizes the task is impossible. And once again, he is greeted by evangelist who reminds him, commandments are only a reminder that you cannot keep them all. Legality cannot get rid of your burden. And until Christian goes before the cross, he keeps his burden, but then his burden is relieved off of him as he comes and bows before the cross of Christ Jesus. Legalism is attractive because it gives us a false sense of control. It massages the ego, thinking that we contribute something to our salvation, gain some favor with God, ridiculously so, somehow meriting his grace. The flesh is naturally suspicious that the gospel cannot be fully trusted. And so we must make some contribution to earn our way past those pearly gates. And this is what drives people to add to the requirements of the gospel or to diminish the gospel's sole importance for our standing with God. Have it my way is the attitude of our age, not only with ordering fast food, but in demanding that God expect that God would accept us and receive us on our terms to enter into his kingdom. Believer, you have died with Christ, and with him you have died to the flesh, to the power of sin, to the bondage of this world, to the devil, and to the elemental spirits of the world. Do not take up 
the yoke that our forefathers could not bear. Take the yoke of him which is easy, whose burden is light, who carries us along in the journey to the celestial city as we learn to abide in him. And lastly, let us consider our deliverance from legalism. Getting past legalism begins with recognizing its character. Paul writes, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch these common taboos that come not from divine wisdom, but human wisdom. These refer to the things that perish, mere human precepts and teachings. They have the appearance of wisdom, but they might help us to deal with spirits and cope with life. But in the end, they are just self-made religion, ascetic practices that require severity to the body. And in the end, they have no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Years ago, I had a friend from college who struggled desperately with alcohol. And he asked me to help him by, if he would just make a vow, that that would help him to quit. And that didn't work. And as he went on his way, and we lost track of each other, years later, he developed a severe mental illness. And after years of abusing substances, he ruined his marriage and his career. But then the Lord got a hold of him. And he got clean and psychiatric help and came back to Christ. Was remarried. Doing well, we reconnected. And sadly, he fell into a dark pit mentally and emotionally and sadly took his own life. A friend who tormented by abuses and traumas from his past, who I believe was genuinely in Christ, who struggled with legalism and struggled with mental health and so forth, and committed a foolish thing, yet I believe is with the Lord. And he's a reminder to me that the practices of the world and the legalisms of our age are not only worthless, but can be quite harmful. Even as Paul writes, they can excite indulgence in the flesh. The reformers, for many of these reasons, strongly oppose the extra-biblical rituals that emerged in the medieval church. And in the Reformation, restored the proper worship of God, looking at Scripture and prescribing worship that was only instructed or found in Scripture, and not the religious exercises invented by the whims of man. And so what we follow in our churches is what's called the regulative principle, to worship only in the manner that is instituted by God in His Word. For some people, for those who are naturally virtuous, virtuous, who are good at keeping the rules. And of course, there are others who struggle with self-control and respect of authority and obeying the rules. The latter, for the latter, the gospel is a good deal. Such folks know that they will never make it to heaven apart from Christ. They know that they are sick, that they are lost, and they are helpless, and they are happy to take the deal of the gospel. But there are the former who do well in life, respectable, morally virtuous, and can be tempted to trust in their own goodness, 
failing to see their need for the gospel, blinded by their own self-righteousness. And they may adopt religious practices because it feels good to be good, morally superior to others who are not as good. And such folks can adopt rules and regulations to keep themselves in and to keep others out. And only by the power of God that might expose their heinous, damnable good works that merit nothing before God, lest they remain trapped and blinded and deluded in their standing before God, assuming that it's based upon how others see them rather than the God who sees the wretched sinner for who he is that falls desperately short of his perfect standards of righteousness. Friends, we must be careful lest we inadvertently communicate to others, neighbors, co-workers, family, children, that the Christian life is a matter of following rules. The Bible indeed has its commands, the most important of which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But Christianity is ultimately a relationship with God with the one who has loved us with an everlasting love, who has sent a mighty and merciful Savior into the world to rescue us from our abominable sins, from our man-made efforts at works righteousness, which are merely a stench in his nostrils. When I was in college, there was, I was a residential advisor, and there was a a girl, a friend of mine who was a fellow RA, and she was a party girl. And she knew I had a reputation for being a Christian and a leader on campus and so forth. And one day we got into a conversation, and she said to me, Tucker, I could never be like you, be as good as you. And I gave the opportunity to explain to her that, first, how little she knows about me. And second, how she misunderstands Christianity and what the gospel is all about. God is not waiting, was not waiting for her to get her act together. Rather, waiting for her to admit her need of him, to humbly acknowledge her sin before him, to receive his grace for her salvation, and to transform her life into something remarkable and beautiful in his sight. My son has been involved in a group called SAD, Students Against Destructive Decisions, based on the former MAD organization, Mothers Against Drunk Driving. And it's a group of students that care about their fellow classmates, wanting to help them turn away from alcohol and drugs and other destructive choices, to to take better care of their bodies, to act responsibly, to go on to live productive lives. There certainly are many negative influences abounding in our culture today. In some ways, the church is like sad, but hopefully more glad than sad. It's our task to influence believers and non-believers away from the negative, destructive ways of our broken culture to follow Christ, to turn away from destructive thinking and idolatry, to follow the one who loves us and redeems us and saves us for himself. 
but rather than giving people a list of rules or our personal opinions, we seek for those to be grounded in the Word of God and to faithfully follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was deeply concerned about this young church being influenced by false teacher with their obsessions with rules and ascetic practices and the rigidity of the law, the worship of angels, which were all dangerous to turn, shift their focus away from Christ and depending upon his grace and a life that is pleasing to him. For in the end, legalism leads to disillusionment. It either gives a false sense of assurance for those who seem to be good at it while leaving others hopeless in their despair. One of my professors in seminary defined heresy as anything that compromises the identity of the Redeemer or the nature of redemption. And we dissected the Arian, the historic Arian heresy that rejected the deity of Christ and rejected the fallen nature of man, and so, of course, distorted and, and, and rejected the nature of biblical redemption. Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses would be examples of modern-day Arian heresies. The Roman Catholic Church would be a mixture of truth and error, and though the Catholic Church upholds the full deity of Christ and the vicarious atonement of our Lord— it goes on to undermine that teaching by holding up Mary as co-redeemer, the saints as intercessors with God, in the nature of the Mass, which is re-sacrificing Christ over and over again with every exercising of the Mass. In contrast to the book of Hebrews that clarifies that Christ died for us once and for all. And so within Catholicism, there is the legalistic focus on the sacraments, and denying its adherents' assurance of their faith and resting in the finished work of Christ. It leaves their adherents to believe that their salvation and that their perseverance is ultimately up to their own performance rather than resting in the power and grace of God. Consider Mormonism. Stat studies have demonstrated that the state of Utah has one of the highest rates of depression and depression uh, medication usage in the country. And oftentimes that is a result of the way Mormonism runs over a course of a person's life. The idealism of youth fades away to the reality of each member falling far short of the high standards set for the church, the goals of celestial marriage and the goals of the next higher life. And a religion based in works righteousness and man-centered religion that downplays the grace of God leads people to despair and depression. In my missionary travels overseas, I was introduced to Sikhism. The Sikhs, which, Sikhism, which is a break-off of the Hindu religion from an ethnic section of India. And if you've never known a Sikh, you will understand that they are great neighbors, lovely people who serve and do great works driven by their doctrine of karma. And under the doctrine of karma, the belief in reincarnation that when you die, if you do good deeds, you will move up in the progression of reincarnation. And if you do 
bad deeds, you'll digress and move lower in the scale, all based upon some kind of cosmic, impersonal scale of weighing the good deeds and the bad. And when I learned of this doctrine, I thought to myself, how could you live with hope other than wishful thinking, knowing that your works and that, your ju- that your, all of your works would be judged by such a scale of perfection? I mentioned these three variants of Catholicism and Mormonism and Sikhism to help illustrate the nature of legalism in other religions. And yet, as a church that strives to be faithful to the biblical gospel, to hold fast to the doctrines of grace, we in our flesh are also prone to fall into the same traps of legalism that characterize Catholics, the Mormons, the Sikhs. It's not more rules. It's not better rules. And it's not even the rejection of God-given rules, which we call antinomianism against the law. But we must understand that God's law was not meant to be kept legalistically. Rather, his law does govern society, but shows us our need for Christ, leading us to the cross and repentance, and provides guidance in how we might walk in a manner of pleasing to God by faith. And as this is with this understanding that Psalm 119 is understood and appreciated as a love poem to God's law because it expresses love and worship for the beauty of God's holiness and his righteousness that we acquire by faith alone and the only one who was the perfect keeper of the law. The antidote to legalism is Christ. Rightly knowing him, embracing his perfect life and his sacrificial death in our place, walking by faith to love and to know and to serve him, regularly recognizing how far we fall short of God's holiness. But rather than leading us to despair, it compels us to rejoice, for his love and his grace is so far greater than our sin. May his love and his grace compel us to be like him, not following legalistic rituals, but living the life of faith to know him and his word, improving upon our repentance and humble gratitude, submitting to his sovereign will for us and living out the joyful freedom that God has called us heavenward in Christ. To him be glory and praise forever. Father, we're grateful for the magnitude of your grace, of your love revealed to us in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're grateful for the gospel, for the hope that we are redeemed by his perfect and finished work in our place. May we cast down before you all the man-made principles and regulations that tempt us. May we learn by grace to walk and to live by faith for your glory and your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. 
To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.